Hello everybody, this is a very quick introduction to this episode of Film Gold. Just to say that this is another oldie from the archives. This was originally recorded in, I think it was even March 2020, so right in the belly of the beast of Covid and lockdown. Possibly early April, I honestly can't remember. But it originally went out on the Stinking Paws podcast, run by my dear friend Scott Phipps, who is not just a podcast friend, we've actually met twice, I think, in the flesh, and we're going to meet again in December. Scott's podcasts are The Sinky Paws, Real Britannia, and Rainbow Valley. I'll put links in the show notes, of course. Now, I've slightly edited this purely because there were quite a lot of references to the time when we were recording it, but I left in a little bit about lockdown to give it some, uh, to place it in history to some extent. Also, Film Gold and Life and Life Only, two of my podcasts didn't exist, but you hear me do a little plug for Glass Onion on John Lennon, if you haven't heard of that. That is, I guess, my main podcast or my most high profile at the moment. I think Scott at one point mentions that he's been going seven years with Stinking Paws, but I think he's actually celebrating his 10 years. That would make sense, yeah, 2013. He's celebrating 10 years in the podcast game next year. And just finally, one more thing. I think I mentioned that Raging Bull was my favourite film and then it's joint favourite, but since 2020 I've logged all my films on Flickchart, just over 1,500 now, and Raging Bull sits proudly at number one. Yeah, no, I mean... uh, It's hard to judge it against some of the other films I've got in my top 10 because it's just apples and oranges a lot of the time. But I guess it's always got that special place in my heart. So um, I think it will stay as number one for a while. I find with newer films, no new film can ever go straight to number one. It has to sit for a few years and it has to grow in my appreciation over time. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this. So this is me on the Stinky Paws with Scott Phipps back in 2020 talking about my favourite film and a film that, uh, as you'll hear, Scott grew to appreciate during this conversation. There's no outro to this episode. I just let the music to Scott's podcast and this podcast play out and um, I'll see you for the next one. Enjoy. Well, sounds good. Sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! It's the Stinking Paws podcast. Hi, Scott here. Now, if you follow the Twitter feed or you're a member of the Facebook group, you may be aware of this week's guest. Late last year, earlier this year, I was invited onto the excellent Glass Onion on John Lennon podcast to chat about the two John Lennon Imagine documentaries. Now, the host of that show agreed to appear on Real Britannia a couple of weeks back where we chatted about the Richard Lester movie, How I Won the War, mainly because it featured John Lennon. Well, 
like a fool, he's agreed to appear here on the Stinking Paws to chat about a movie that's got absolutely nothing to do with John Lennon. It's Anthony. Good afternoon, mate. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm very well. We were just talking off air about week two of lockdown and... Mm. Well, one benefit of it is is creating some great podcasting opportunities. Podcasting seems to be going on from strength to strength in this uh, troubled time, mate. I mean, you're a busy man with your podcast, aren't you? They talk about the similarity between crisis and opportunity, don't they? I've actually made a point on my couple of shows that I've put out recently not to actually talk about this. I put a couple of things about it in the outro, but I wanted to sort of say, well, my podcasts are like a nice diversion, you know, something separate. When we go back or people discover this podcast in years to come, it's really going to sort of carbon date when all this was taking place because that's the general conversation amongst all the podcasters at the moment. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, we were talking about how events become news stories almost instantly and then they become almost two separate things, an event and a news story. Yeah. And so the news just has to keep rolling and it's interesting. But, you know, if you take that take that further about this weird thing about recording podcasts and then they're there forever mm. you know who knows could be a hundred years exactly I also, someone's discovered us in 2120 imagine it can you imagine it this would be the turn to podcast for your film history god help us um, <laughs> I read somewhere yeah. this is even going back a couple of years ago that of all the podcasts that were ever created or ever made Mm. 75% of them don't exist anymore. They're out there still, you know, in something one form or another, but they're not going anymore. 75% plus have fallen by the wayside. Oh, as in the shows? The shows themselves, yeah. Right, not the episodes. So they keep the episodes on there, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, the people have either gone on to different things or lost heart with it or done something completely different Mm. or tried it. Um, Yeah, I think it was 75% plus just, just aren't going anymore. But since I started podcasting, which was seven eight years ago nearly now eight years in the summer yeah um a lot more people have taken it up i mean you're fairly new to the game a couple of years down the line mm. and we will give you the opportunity to give the listeners all your links to these shows towards the end of the episode today movies now mm. i know a little bit about your movie watching taste but not a great deal we've been sort of chatting over the past Six months or so, I'd say. And on the Real Britannia podcast, you selected a cracking Stanley Baker heist movie from the 60s called A Prize of Arms. I know you've got quite an eclectic taste when it comes to movies, and it sort of spans across all the years, all the genres. Have you got any particular favourite sort of actors, actresses, genres, directors at all? Is there anything you gravitate towards? Are you pretty open-minded when it comes to your, your movie watching? There's a few things that I particularly like. I mean, we, you and I have talked about this thing they call the Easy Riders to Raging Bulls mm, period. Yes. Which is sort of 69, 68 perhaps. Yeah. Well, probably from Bonnie and Clyde, actually 67, mm. to Raging Bull was one of the last ones. Yeah. And it was this period where you had a lot of guys coming out of film school, you know, Spielberg, Scorsese, De Palma, Coppola, etc. And they'd learned all these sort of techniques from Russian and German expressionist films Going back to the silent era, you also had uh, studio executives uh, doing too much cocaine <laughs> and uh, letting their judgment and their control slip a little bit. So there's a bit of the swing in the 60s in there. Yeah. And it was a sort of uh, perfect storm of all these things to create this just amazing period. But I mean, that whole period in the world, you know, with Vietnam and everything was fascinating to me. Obviously, the Beatles overlapped there. Yeah. I was also brought up, well, 
a friend of mine's mother had an amazing collection of old black and white films and on old uh, copied VHS tapes, hmm. we worked our way through lots and lots of Hitchcock. Wow. Sort of at 13, 14, pretty young for that, really. Hmm. My favourite actors, well, ties in quite nicely with what we're talking about today. De Niro is a big favourite. Marlon Brando is the godfather in every <laughs> way for me. The guy is amazing. And I keep mentioning him on my John Lennon podcast. He hmm. seems to come up because John Lennon and Marlon Brando seem to be the two most fascinating characters to me. My favourite film for a long time was, in fact, Raging Bull. Okay. Uh, our yep. topic for today, yeah. Yep. Over the last two or three years, I've rewatched my top 30 films, I'd say. Hmm. And there's lots of kind of ones from the 70s that aren't quite so high profile, like Sleuth. And, yeah. um, well, they're taking a pill in one, two, three, because yep. Robert Shaw is another big mm. favourite in terms of actors. And... Um, I kind of come up with a top three. So it's, it's Raging Bull, 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Apocalypse Now, which those last two are not very original choices, I understand. And I'd say that of those three films, there's one Kubrick, one Scorsese, and one Coppola. I'm yeah. kind of happy with that, because I'd probably <laughs> say they're my three favourite filmmakers. So, yeah. I really have lost touch badly with mm. modern films, because I spend a lot of time finding obscure ones that are free to view, you know, freeloading some old black and white films from YouTube, basically. Get some crackers doing that. Like that. You really find some, some hidden gems in there. Oh, you really can. Yeah. And the British, uh, again, discovering your podcast, uh, I think it was about a year ago, Real Britannia. Mm. I've gone back to some of those British ones, and we have Talking Pictures TV. Plug, plug. <laughs> oh, is there another podcast out there, by the way? <laughs> there is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But we have that on TV and some amazing stuff comes up. So I've gone backwards, to be honest. Oh, it's great, though. The, the, the thing I've learned doing Real Britannia is that I'd forgotten how much those British movies were part of my childhood and part of my growing up. Yeah. And an important part as well, you know, family time, watching those sort of movies and growing up with your family, watching them together. And and with stinking paws, I mean, we've got a broader canvas to paint on here because, yeah. you know, it's 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 world cinema, it's Hollywood, it is British as well. You know, we do British movies on stinking paws as well. Mm. And thankfully, having guests like yourself on it, it just gives us certain movies that I might not have thought about doing. You know, mm. people's tastes are all different. There was a period in the early days of stinking paws when Charlie was my co-host for a couple of years. And the amount of that that period that you're talking about, that Easy Riders Raging Bull period that we did, mm. and we found things like the conversation and clues. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, and we, it was a running joke for a while that we'd always keep pushing the conversation and clue to people that hadn't seen them. Mm. Uh, we did Easy Rider. We haven't done Bonnie and Clyde, so perhaps that's another one you and I can do at some point because mm. there's still a few in that period that, I'd like to have a little look at Tulane Blacktop, some of those sort of like Warren Oates and all those sort of guys, you know. Um, we'll come back to that later. But today's mm. movie, it's it's 1980. It's it's Raging Bull, Scorsese. Mm. Now, one thing that I've learned over these past few months, getting to know you, going on your shows, is that whenever you appear on a podcast or you host a podcast. Your preparation, I can hear them now. I can hear the notes, right, rustling. <laughs> Here you go. It's a bit louder. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> it's impressive. On my shows, I tend to wing it. 
right, right. I've made an exception in this case. I've jotted down a few things. We're not talking major film study essays here, but just a few pointers. But I'm pretty sure that today's review is going to belong entirely to you. <laughs> because you'll see as we go along, I mentioned something to you off air about my relationship with this movie. Mm. It will all become apparent once we get chatting. So what okay. we're going to do, let's play the trailer and we'll be back after this. around wants to fight me they're all afraid there's a lot of bad things joey maybe it's coming back to me Raging Ball, released in the USA on the 19th of December 1980, directed, of course, by Martin Scorsese, starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci and Kathy Moriarty. The synopsis, now I've lifted this straight from IMDb, says it all, actually, sums it up quite nicely. When Jake LaMotta steps into a boxing ring and obliterates his opponent, he's a prize fighter. But when he treats his family and friends the same way, he's a ticking time bomb, ready to go off at any moment. Though LaMotta wants his family's love, something always seems to come between them. Perhaps it's just his violent bouts of paranoia and jealousy. This kind of rage helped make him a champ, but in real life, he winds up in the ring alone. 
that's not a bad little synopsis. It doesn't give away too many details. I mean, it doesn't tell you exactly who Jake the Motter is. It doesn't tell you anything about Scorsese and De Niro. Yeah. Before I wind you up and let you fly with this, mate, <laughs> right, straight off the bat, this is what I'm going to be sort of pushing towards with you, like just to give you some idea of my background. I've always struggled with this movie. I first watched it mid-80s. I think Channel 4 might have had the premiere and screened it 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, something like I'm sure it was Channel 4. And it was at this period, I was, I was about 14, 15, I was well into my discovery of classic movies and, of course, Raging Bull. I thought, you know, I've got to see this. This is always in critics' top 10 lists and stuff like that. Mm. At the time, I thought it was okay. Not really my cup of tea, but I certainly appreciated it. You know, the acting, cinematography. But I didn't think much more of it than that. I just thought, okay, I've seen it. I've ticked it off. Me, you know, my list of movies I need to see, my bucket list sort of thing. Mm. And I never went back to it until about 15 years ago. So I'm in my 30s at this point. So we got more adult eyes. And I had a lot more knowledge of Scorsese and his work. I'd seen a lot more of his movies by now. So we're talking about 15 years ago. And I watched it again. This is the second time. And in my mind, yes, it's, you know, it's probably a cinematic masterpiece. And yes, there's no doubt De Niro can act. But for me, I couldn't see what the fuss was about. Right, mm. bear with me. I'm not slagging this off at this point. Well, I'm not slagging it off at all. I won't be slagging this film off at all. I couldn't see what the fuss was about. So it's my second watch as a 30 year old. Now, regular listeners will know that I do struggle with certain Scorsese films. We reviewed Mean Streets, Gangs of New York previously on the show. Mm. I'm in no rush to rewatch them. I've, I've watched Goodfellas twice, I think. Probably haven't seen it for 20 years. I've seen Cape Fear a couple of times. Wolf of Wall Street, I loved it, but I've only watched it the once when it first came out. And to be honest, out of all of Scorsese's back catalogue, Casino is probably my favourite, but that's probably down more to my undying love for Sharon Stone than anybody, anything else. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Taxi Driver, like Raging Bull, I struggle with. And I've said this quite a few times on the show. I try really hard with Taxi Driver because I know or I believe that it's a good movie. But in the four four times I've watched it, I come away thinking I've missed something here. Why am I not seeing what other people are seeing? Mm. So when we reviewed it on the show, Charlie and I were discussing it and Charlie pointed out certain things that I'd missed. And my appreciation for it suddenly went up. I'm like, ah, I get it, sort of. I haven't seen it since. And when I do get round to seeing it again since I've had that conversation with Charlie. I'm hoping that it's finally going to click with me, what the mm. appeal is. You know, I, c I can appreciate it's a good-looking movie, I can appreciate the acting, but I'm not raving about it. And this is what I'm like with Raging Bull. I'm hoping that chatting with you today is going to push a couple of buttons in my brain mm. and sort of give me the appreciation of the movie that I think it deserves, or am I wrong? Is it an overblown, overall? overrated movie which I'm you're, you're going to argue against and I'm not saying it is you know I just need to get mm. this straight in my head I think I need you to talk me through it mate okay <laughs> <laughs> well I, I'm I've come here with no agenda to actively convince you about anything because no. no one no one needs to or has to like anything they don't want to I mean it's interesting I, I find films movies are a very personal thing and a, a lot of the time I'm I'm probably going to say this every time we do a film podcast together, mm. that a lot of it is contextual. Mm -hmm. And the couple of things that leapt out while you were talking, mm. I didn't realise it was a Christmas film, by the way. I was thinking an alternative 
title could have been a, a heartwarming Christmas story of brutality <laughs> inside and outside the ring. You know, it's uh, <laughs> it was released at Christmas time as well in the, in, in the states. Yeah, nineteen. That's what I was saying. I didn't until he said that. I didn't. I'd yeah. never never known that. But it's probably um, to time with the Oscar season, isn't it? It's that period of the the year when the big movies tend to get released. So mm. the two things I wanted to say is that there's a lot of films which are pushed as being the best mm. and i've grown to like citizen kane but rather like this film the point i'm going to come on to is i had enough interest that i bought the dvd and when i buy dvds i have to watch all the extras mm-hmm. commentaries and everything yeah. and i watched this commentary of citizen kane and when when you got someone particularly someone whose voice you like it was a film analyst with a really calm voice yeah. just pointing out everything that's in that film that's really where the turning point might come the other thing is that i've had a fascination with boxing since I was a child and you know when you're a child and you get into things those things can stay with you for your whole life you know mm, yeah I think you and I share an obsession with Jaws don't we and we do yeah we might both say that there are deficiencies in the film but it's so married to our lives uh, it's, yeah it's, that, that it's hard to divorce those two things you, you see how we used married and divorced well it? done it you yeah, professional you. podcaster on the other end of the line here well done sir yeah <laughs> uh, you know, for example, I watched I watched Gone with the Wind because yeah. uh, I thought I've got to watch this once in my life, yes. and I thought Vivian Lee should have won a Golden Raspberry, not an Oscar. <laughs> it's so wooden. I mean, I just did not care one iota about any of those characters. I'm sorry, Gone with the Wind. It's horses fans. for courses, isn't it? That's what I mean. We, yeah. we, as as film fans, and to a certain degree, film critics, almost. I never class myself as a film critic. You know, we're not going to like what everybody else likes and I love the fact that we've got this opportunity to sort of express what we get about the movie what we get out of it and I know for a fact that you get a lot more out of this movie than I do which I think is going to make a great conversation over the next sort of 45 minutes or so that you're going to explain your love for Raging Bull to me and I'm going to try and fathom out why it is so highly regarded and why I don't get that in, in my brain. That's that's how I think this conversation's going to go. But I'm not saying it's a bad film. I'm not saying I didn't like the film. Mm. I'm just trying to judge its popularity and, and why it's so highly revered. And you're going to convince me. I'm sure you are. Okay. <laughs> oh, just, uh, sorry, the thing I didn't finish about boxing, mm. yeah. Mm. I've, um, and when I was young, you know, my dad was a Muhammad Ali fan and mm. uh, he showed me a couple of his fights and obviously some of his interviews. And my background is nothing like Jake LaMotta's... <laughs> Not at all, but uh, I did a little bit of boxing. I went to a club when I was a teenager. Yeah. There's something so primal and so honest about boxing, which is a very strange comment considering how much the mob were involved in boxing. <laughs> but the honesty comes when everyone gets out of the ring and it's just two guys and a referee. And the two yeah. guys, if you notice at the end of most fights, they embrace each other, even if they've been slagging each other off in yes. the build-up. Because yeah. they both realise what an extraordinary thing it is mm. to become a professional boxer and to do that for a living. Yeah. Because, I mean, I won't go into it now, but when you really study it, the punishment they're receiving in the ring in a championship fight and just how, you know, Martin Scorsese suddenly realised that he didn't have to be a boxing fan. The ring that is the metaphor. You know, it's the cages we're in. It's the traps that we set for ourselves and the traps that society sets for us, you yeah. know. That's what the ring means and... Yeah, interesting you say about at the end of a fight that 
fighters will tend to embrace and it's just a release isn't it that this whole months of preparation is finally over and they've beaten the living crap out of each other for the last 12 yeah. rounds there's one point in this movie and it's i think it's the fight with sugar ray or one of the sugar ray robinson fights where mm. i expected them to go and hug each other and, and de niro walks up to the sugar ray robinson guy Oh, yeah. And he just says to him, I didn't go down. I didn't go down. You never down. got me down, yeah. right? You never got me down, <laughs> And that embrace never happens. You know, he's still, he's Jake LaMotta. This is the thing about this movie. He's such an unlikable character. I found myself hating De Niro, but in a good way. Yeah. We've said this before on the podcast. If you come away from a movie hating a bad guy, a villain in a movie you know that that actor has done their job correctly and, you know, perfectly well. Because what you get with this is a perfect depiction of a paranoid, almost psychotic lunatic with no redeeming features whatsoever. It might also make you perhaps question your morality because some of these people like, I mean, if you think of, uh, just to give a recent example, Breaking Bad. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, I mean, I, I love that show, but, but when I started to think of it in a more kind of um, moral way, mm-hmm. you are essentially rooting for this guy. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> yeah. much the reason that people, people keep watching, apart from you know, the production values and the acting and all yeah. that. He is the protagonist, whatever the precise meaning of protagonist is, the guy we follow. And, you know, the 70s is this famous period of anti-heroes, which basically means a very flawed hero. Yes. And, but if you compare with someone like McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, he's a flawed hero, but he seems to be, in the end, a fairly decent person. A bit of a rogue, a bit of a Jack the Lad. But uh, yeah, you I've... can't really compare it with LaMotta, because we'll get to the book in a second. Yeah. He's actually worse in the book. Well, <laughs> I think that period that we were talking about, that Easy Rider Raging Ball period, is mm. a great example of, like you said, the anti-heroes and you couldn't root for a villain because the Hayes Code previously would not let the bad guy get away with it, would it? There always had to be some sort of, um, you know, sense of justice. You know, the bad guy was always put in prison at the end or get shot or whatever, you know, the good guys would always win. So we get this wonderful, from the early 60s, where you can actually root for the villain. And like you said, Breaking Bad's a fine example of that. Let's go back to the beginning. Talk about the book for us then, mate, because it is based on Lamotta's autobiography i'm assuming i think it's written by a couple of people but mm. it was a guy called pete savage who was jake lamotta's best friend i guess and the joey character in the film joe pesci's character yeah. is a composite of the real joey and pete savage oh, right. so they thought okay. we'll just have one character instead of two and mm-hmm. it was, paul schrader turned it into more of a brother's two brothers story yeah but um the book yeah the book isn't brilliantly written at all it's you know it's not a classic in that sense but I haven't read it for a while, but the thing I remember, as I just said to you, Jake LaMotta was actually in many ways worse than De Niro portrays him or the film portrays him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the two things that I remember, Jake LaMotta actually killed, or sorry, I should say thought he'd killed a bookmaker mm. from, uh, I think they were from the Bronx, weren't they? Yeah. Mm. What happened was that when Jake LaMotta was 16, his dad gave him an iron bar and said, son, if anyone gives you any trouble, use that. Right. And uh, during one of these documentaries I just I saw last night about Raging Ball, they were saying, can you totally blame Jake LaMotta when you know that story? That, you know, that was, that was his dad's, <laughs> dad's uh, advice. Know, fatherly advice. Yeah. <laughs> so Jake LaMotta actually killed, I can't remember how he did it, but he 
thought he'd killed this bookie. The guy seemed to be stone dead. So he was carrying that around with him. And then years later, this bookie appears. Oh, right. Yeah, so he hadn't actually committed murder, but he had ostensibly, he thought he had, and he carried on with his life. And then later on, he actually rapes, uh, I don't know if it's Pete Savage, but one of his best friend's wife or girlfriend. Wow, okay. And then you've got lots of mob stuff, so it's kind of faithful to the book, but in fact, Mardik Martin wrote the original draft, and then Paul Schrader, who I'm sure you've heard of, wrote wrote Taxi Taxi Driver, Driver, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then actually De Niro and Scorsese went away, and they reworked the script as well, so it was a bit of a committee job there. There's a great story at the premiere. The motto Mm. was invited along with his wife, Mm. and halfway through he turns to his wife and he says, was I really that bad? And she turns to him and said, no, you were worse. So it is true (laughs) what you're saying. But you, you just touched on the sort of the background, the book. It was De Niro was reading the book originally. I think it was during the film in The Taxi Driver. Is that right? And he was trying to convince Scorsese way back in 74, 75 to make the movie even there. Or was it Mean Streets? I can't remember. I read somewhere. It was, it was... I've heard a couple of things. Mm. I, I think it might be The Godfather Part Two. Or And then when he was making, I think he made a film called 1900, which I haven't seen. I think he had the book then. But mm. I mean, it's not the kind of book that you would need to pour over for weeks. It's all pretty simple, you know. It's, yeah. So he probably read it quickly. And essentially he was... He wanted Scorsese to do it, but Scorsese wasn't a boxing fan and he couldn't find any connection to it. And this and, is obviously pre-Rocky as well then, isn't it? So the germ of yeah. the idea was there before Stallone had the success. Um, yeah, there'd, there'd been quite a few boxing films. There's one called The Setup, actually, with Robert Ryan, which yes. I'd quite like to see again. Mm. There was one with Paul Newman and uh, somebody up there likes me. Yeah, it's a great film, yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. And then... Um, so I think boxing has always been a popular topic. Oh, yeah, it'll be, go right back to the original version of The Champ. You know, that was uh, mm. Wallace Beery or wherever it was back then. Certainly had a bit of a resurgence post-75, post-Rocky, didn't it? That's the thing. Wasn't mm. Chartoff and Winkler the producers of this? I think they were the producers of Rocky as well. Yeah, they were. And in fact, one of the reasons this got made, because the studios, quite rightly, I would, I would say, were sceptical about this material. Yeah. The other thing which... I don't know if it's the same thing now. Perhaps audiences are more sophisticated, but Mm. in the 80s, for example, when you made it, when you decide to make a film black and white, they say you've already cut, you've cut the potential gate receipts by 50%. Yeah. And it's the same with subtitles, Nick. I don't know. It's a bit of a bee in my bonnet. I mean, why is it such an imposition to read subtitles during a film? Yeah, some people (laughs) just don't get on with it, do they? That's the thing. It's it's quite interesting. Like, there, there are three, three or four great sort of major movies around this period that were filmed in black and white you know the same year we got the elephant man oh yeah also you got david lynch was doing a razor head you had the last picture show was in black and white wasn't it i think paper moon was in black and white obviously woody allen films stardust memories came out this year that was great sharon stone again her first um first appearance uh chartoff and winkler actually sorry i didn't finish my point Mm. i'm rambling today i'm sorry (laughs) chartoff and winkler actually used the fact used the Rocky thing to get Raging Bull made because the studios said they wanted to make Rocky 2. Chartoff and Winkler were thinking that already, but they pretended they weren't fussed about making it, and they used the leverage of Rocky 2 to get Raging Bull made. Oh, so there is right. a connection other than boxing between those films. Going hmm. back to black and white, I read somewhere, I mean, you've done a lot more research on this than I have. About this time, Scorsese was great friends with Michael Powell, the legend yeah. Michael Powell, Powell and Pressburger. Mm. who eventually married Thelma Shoemaker, didn't he? He, was, he, he married um, the editor. He was married Absolutely. to him right up to his death. 
And this may be a bit of an urban myth, I'm not too sure, but the reason it was filmed in black and white was not through any artistic reasoning by Scorsese himself. When they were filming the fight scenes, Powell pointed out that the colour of the boxing gloves they were using were the wrong colour. Back in the 40s, there was only two types. I think they were black or ox blood, I think they were called. And Scorsese had chosen some lighter boxing colour or something. I can't remember what it was. And rather than refilm, he took the decision to film it in black and white. But I can't imagine that being the case. I can't imagine that being the reasoning why this movie is filmed in, in black and white at all. Well, one of the documentaries, they did mention that. I think that wasn't the only reason, but I think maybe they, they'd suspected there was something wrong with it anyway, like it was all a bit too bright, perhaps. There was, Yeah, but wasn't there also that Scorsese was so influenced by the bloody sponge at a boxing match that he'd seen? Yeah, the, he went to a boxing match twice, and the first one he sat in uh, what they call in America the bleachers. Yes. The very, very high seats where you mm. can't really see anything. And then they went again to Madison Square Garden, and LaMotta took them. Yeah. And presumably LaMotta was talking him through everything. So I think there was LaMotta, De Niro, and Scorsese went to went ringside, which mm. would have been uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, there were a couple of things. Uh, the blood on the rope. That was it, dripping off the rope. That was it, yeah. That was it. What was the other thing? And it was the bloody sponge on his back. That's it, yeah. He was sponging down his back, and it... And it it looked like a mixture of sort of blood and water that was running down it. Mm. But I think Scorsese was definitely would have grown up at film school and everything, watching a lot of black and white. So I think he was very taken with that idea. And I think it was just the fact that Michael Powell had perhaps identified what was wrong with it, that the gloves were too bright, but maybe the whole film would have been too bright in colour, you know, yeah. like a, so it kind of takes its place as a sort of anti-Rocky even though the beginning of the original Rocky was very gritty mm-hmm. and was great, but the sequels obviously became more and more glitzy and yep. more 80s yeah, definitely. as they enter the 80s. So, yeah, the, the gloves would have been... I mean, I'm actually a bit colourblind, but it's somewhere between red and brown. Mm, ox blood, sort of, I think, or something that is the official colour. I can't remember. That's but a, a sort of dull, much duller red, obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So where's Scorsese at this point? You know, he's, he's already filmed... Main Streets, Taxi Driver, New York, New York. Last Waltz, wasn't it? I think had already been filmed at this point. And it's before King of Comedy, Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, and all those ones that we know. That's right. No doubt, you know, some amazing movies in his CV. I mean, Scorsese in general, for yourself, I'm going to assume you're a fan. Yeah, he's a big favourite. Yeah. yeah. Are there any turkeys amongst that lot that you're like, oh, that's a bad movie, Marty. I'm not, you know, not a big fan of that one. I haven't really followed him recently. Mm. Um, I've heard there's a couple of films that haven't done so well recently. But Silence not... was one, wasn't it, I think, a couple of years back? Yeah, I've really badly lost touch, actually. Mm. I'm very good on film up to about 2008, and then yeah. it's just completely fallen away. But, um, no, I, I, I mean, New York, New York, I wasn't mad on because I'm mm. not mad on musicals. Yeah. And, I mean, De Niro still did a pretty good job of being a musician mm. in that film. There's not really, I mean, he had Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, King of Comedy, I love, and then he got into Goodfellas. Yeah. I prefer Goodfellas to Casino myself, but... Most could, people do. I think I'm the exception yeah. to the rule. I think maybe a lot of it, Goodfellas came first, and mm. The Last Temptation of Christ is mm-hmm. a great film. Yeah. I mean, I like that film After Hours. Have you seen that? Not since it came out. Yeah, but the yeah. comedy, isn't it? It's his really only attempt at broad comedy. Am I right there? I don't think there's any... Yeah, still real... black comedy. I mean, mm. there's not, Scorsese films are never not going to be 
dark in some way, <laughs> but uh, it's got Griffin Dunn, who was in American Don't Wealth in London. Yeah. yeah, I mean Scorsese. You know, he's, to my mind, he's, he's what I class as an old school director. Mm. You know, he's, he's a man with a vast knowledge, a deep respect for the medium, and for mm. the history of filmmaking. And you can see why he became friends with Michael Powell, or Michael Powell became friends with him, mm. because they're two like-minded souls. You know, there's this this venerable titan of British cinema influencing the new wave. And, and yeah, you can just see how they, they got to be friends and the great respect I can imagine that Martin Scorsese had for Michael Powell. And Michael mm. Powell thinking, you know what, there are some great filmmakers out there if... You know, you point them in the right direction. So, yeah, fascinating sort of um, association that those two had. Yeah. I think the other thing with Scorsese, I mean, it's clear what comes out is passion. He doesn't make a film unless he's got a connection to it. I mean, he's he's actually very good friends with Steven Spielberg. And Spielberg's career trajectory has been interesting because he's, he's sort of more hard-hitting films, obviously starting with Schindler's List. Mm. I think films like Munich and yeah. those. He's got more edgy, but there's always... I'm not the biggest Tom Hanks fan in the world. I respect him as an actor, but I think Spielberg and Hanks together, you're going to get that rather wholesome, what I would say slightly sanitised view of the world. Is it a bit Although, Capra and Jimmy Stewart? As sort of updated, more hard-hitting than mm. that, because obviously you can do more nowadays. Yeah. But yeah, they're, they're, Spielberg and Scorsese are, are very good friends, I think, still to this day. But Scorsese's got that edge. And, I mean, the reason he started doing Raging Bull was that, in fact, in um, 1978, he was hospitalised. I think yeah. he had a marriage breakup and he was hospitalised. He'd been doing loads and loads of cocaine and probably all sorts of other things. Mm-hmm. And he had some kind of epiphany. He was in hospital for a couple of weeks. And he suddenly, I think through, I'm sure De Niro came to visit him and probably said, well, you know, what do you think about that Raging Bull thing, you know, <laughs> in your weakened state, you know. Yeah, and he had him. some sort of epiphany and he, he he saw a bit of that Lamotta character in him and that was essential. And I read a quote somewhere, he said that he actually saved his life, didn't he? He would have been dead if it wasn't yeah. for De Niro convincing him to make this movie. I don't I think, think so. Scorsese has ever taken the easy buck. I don't think he's ever made a movie. It's like you said, they've always got, a passion behind them and he's got some of the deep interest in every subject that he does mm. I don't think he's ever taken a movie just for the sake of the money looking down the list on IMDB they're all high quality Hollywood productions there's nothing there that suggests that you know he's, he's just done a quickie quota sort of thing to, to, to earn a few quid yeah and I mean he'd done enough by Goodfellas or Casino that Everything he does now is just adding to the legacy. It's kind of like Bob Dylan. I mean, I don't know how much of a Dylan fan you are, but just purely the albums he made in the 60s. If he disappeared or or not survived, he still would have had enough. You know, the same Lennon McCartney, I'm sure loads of other people. Let's talk about the... We're not going to go deep into the plot because mm. we, we tend not to overanalyse scene by scene on the stinking pause. But you told yeah. me before... We, we actually turned the mics on that you particularly wanted to talk about the fight scenes. And I think we need to. We, we need to talk yeah. about the fight scenes in this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll get a little bit technical, but not, not too much. Yeah. yeah, as regards the plot, I mean, he's a middleweight boxer. I guess if people have seen the film and, and are listening to us now and perhaps will go and revisit it, mm. 
Jake LaMotta is a fairly well-known boxer, but without Raging Bull, I don't think he would have been so well-known because essentially at that time, the best middleweights were him and Sugar Ray Robinson. Mm -hmm. And Sugar Ray Robinson is actually rated pound for pound the best boxer ever by a a lot of people, just ahead of Muhammad Ali, probably. LaMotta and Robinson fought, I think, six times, and you see three or four of those in the film. But really, LaMotta was frustrated by the fact that he wouldn't really play ball with a mob and yeah. he got his title shot. It's all very political. You know, him and Robinson were the best fighters. They kept fighting each other because no one else wanted to fight them basically because <laughs> they were true. too, <laughs> too dangerous. Yeah. So the fight scenes, yeah, I mean, they shot them over 10 weeks and I mean, it's the amount of work and the amount of intensity that that must've taken. I can't even imagine because with most boxing films, for example, Rocky films, the cameraman is outside the ring yeah, as if it's, a, going as if it's a TV ring. broadcast sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, it's all often done with multiple cameras. You know, I don't know, seven or eight cameras perhaps, I'm not mm. sure. Scorsese said, right, we're going to do this the Scorsese way, which is we're going to kill ourselves for ten weeks, basically. <laughs> <laughs> you know, So he shot inside the ring, which is just making it just amazingly more difficult. Mm. I don't, I think they probably had... I'm surely they wouldn't have been crazy enough to have one camera. I don't know. I didn't check that, but probably maximum two or three different cameras running. Mm. I mean, there's just so much. It's it's really hard to condense this, but <laughs> there's I mean, what, too much to say, isn't there? Because it uh, is just a visual treat. Those three minute boxing sequences, not even yeah. that in some cases. I could point out a couple of things, actually. Yeah, I mean, what, one of the things is, if you notice the cameras, you hear this constant shutter noise. Yeah. There's actually five or six different sounds there. Mm-hmm. And the shutter of the camera is supposed to be something that's sort of impinging on his life, as it does with a lot of famous people, essentially. Mm-hmm. But it's just this relentless, very, very loud shutter sound. And then I think the main thing that perhaps people can take from this is that the fights were actually designed almost like a a dance the camera angles and the way you view the ring and the fight they're actually all done quite differently and they reflect jake lamotta's mood and how his life is going i've noticed that sorry to interrupt mate i noticed that particularly in the robinson fight where he came back after the war it's very stylized isn't it because there's you know there's there's points where he just stands back and he's just staring and then the camera reverses angle and, and shows Robinson heading towards him. It's almost in slow motion. Absolutely. And it is his perception of the fight, isn't it? Yeah, I noticed that particularly on that one. Mm. Yeah, sorry, yeah. mate, yeah. Well, there's one where his life's going really well and he has a really good win, and you'll notice the ring is very wide mm. and it's a lot brighter. But then there's, a, there's one fight with Robinson, it's probably the one that you're talking about, which is actually designed as a descent into hell, and they actually had flames... I don't know how they manage this. I think that's what Thelma Schoonmaker said in this documentary. They actually had literally flames coming. You don't see the flames, but you see smoke rising. Right, yeah. And then it's it's shot very dark, and there's an element of confusion, even to the point where the camera is actually outside the ring for a second. Mm. But Jake LaMotta, as he's sitting in the corner between rounds, is actually obscured by one of the ropes, so you can't see his face. Oh, right, okay. And it's all supposed to be this sort of descent into hell has a kind of mirage smoky effect as if Jake LaMotta doesn't quite know what's going on. Like as if it's all surreal, as if it's imaginary almost. So, I mean, and, until that's kind of pointed out, you perhaps wouldn't, well, someone with a, a keen eye like you who's been doing film podcasts 
for a few years would would notice that. Right. Remember what I said at the beginning. I needed you to point out certain things to help make it click for me. Mm. You've just done it. That's one. That's one part of it. I'm thinking. Okay, there's more to this than just a good looking fight scene here. Yeah, and I mean, there's slow motion. There's the thing that we mentioned earlier of Scorsese with the blood, where they basically are putting the sponge on the fighter's back, Mm. which is supposed to be his water, but it's a mixture of water and blood for obvious reasons. Mm. And there's some other amazing things that I didn't I didn't know that when Lamotta's having his final beating, his final fight with Robinson, which is the absolutely brutal yeah. hammering he takes, the one where, as you said at the end, he says, you never got me down, yes. right? Mm. Yeah, because Lamotta famously never went down and mm. could absorb pretty much any amount of punishment, a bit like Joe Frazier later mm. on. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And there's stuff like, um, yeah, there's a bit where... Um, this is amazing. Just before he takes that beating, in the round before it, one of his corner men is sort of gently wiping, I think, his cuts. Mm. But it looks like he's giving him the last right. <laughs> You're definitely and, seeing more in this than I ever did. Yeah, well, no, I mean, that, that was pointed out. You know, it's not exactly that. But yeah. it's a very, for some reason, a bit like Kubrick. I can't imagine there's anything in a Scorsese film that's an accident because the guy is... Mm. Oh, God, so precise. So, meti- mm. so meticulous. Mm. And then, um, shall I talk about the sound effects now or, or later? There was, I was going to just sort of go back to that because you mentioned oh. about, like, the flash bulbs popping. I mm. read somewhere that the sound designer created these specifically from certain objects, didn't it? and the punches. Yeah. I, I know you, you're going to have all the details on this, but also... Because they were so unique and they were created especially for this film, he then destroyed all the tapes after the film was released. Is that correct? Yeah, he did. He right. Frank Warner, his name was. Mm. He, um, yeah, he wanted to start from scratch every time. He didn't want to reuse anything. Can I go through these sound effects? Yeah, because it's, it's quite fascinating how they come about and sort of created them. Yeah, go on, mate. What have we got there? Yeah, it's quite amazing. I mean, one of them is, is a drum, you will hear, a big bass drum which is distorted, mm. and there's something, I don't know exactly what it symbolises, but it's very om- ominous. Mm. There's lots of sound of animals, so you hear like an elephant braying, <laughs> and a <laughs> horse. <laughs> One of the amazing ones is a horse kind of shuddering, which kind of reflects the shudder you'd have if someone was hitting you extremely hard, wow, you know? Wow, okay. Yeah, and there's sort of howling and screaming noises, but this, this guy is a genius for me. He, he slowed, he, they're slowed down, there's some backwards noises, which is very Beatles, of course. I was just about to say, was it George <laughs> Martin in charge of this? No, it wasn't, <laughs> There's echo applied to it. And he also, um, one of the sounds is dry ice on glass. And uh, you can imagine this horrible screeching sound that dry ice would make on, on glass. And that was sort of used as a backup to the sort of screaming sounds of these animals. And it's yeah. the flash bulb I've mentioned is supposed to be like some sort of machine gun. Um, wasn't there sort of baseball bats beating the hell out of melons and fruit and things or something as well? Yeah, I mean, uh, he said, a, is a cantaloupe just an American name for it's a melon? It's a type of it melon, a, isn't it? Yeah, it's a type yeah. of melon, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's some, something whacking a cantaloupe is the boxing, is the punching mm. sounds. I'm mm. sure there's more, but and there's rumbling. And Oh, one of the other things is that in that final, that Sugar Ray Robinson beating, there's a bit where there's silence. This is very, very stylized thing where they basically both stop. Yes, you know, and they're staring at each other. Yeah. Yeah, obviously didn't happen in the fight like no. that. Although you can actually see the original fight with the original commentary on, on YouTube. But mm. they have silence and then they, they, they put the sound of an animal breathing. 
to signify Lamotta or well, and Sugar Ray's breathing. But maybe there's something about an animal breathing that's just a kind of deeper. You imagine like a large animal. It'd be a, well, it's it's very, very primal thing that you hinted at at the beginning as well, isn't it? You know. Yeah, but there's a sort of element of horror about mm. these screeching noises. When you, when, when you know that they're there and you listen, you know, I really would love it. It would be the ultimate tribute if your listeners went back and watched the film having listened to us talking about it. And I think if you have the DVD, if anyone has the DVD with all the extras, it's worth kind of wading through those because there's loads of stuff that I didn't notice. Already. Now, um, I'd sort of put off a rewatch for a, a, a long time, <laughs> you know, a future rewatch. I may go back to this a little bit quicker than I was in- expecting <laughs> because, like I said, I think you, you are managing to turn the right buttons here for me and push those buttons in my brain, like I said earlier, <laughs> in, into what I missed. The fight scenes, I had no problems with the fight scenes and you giving a bit of background as to how they were created have just made them even more fascinating. But it's the build-up to the fight scenes and it's the family stuff as well, which we'll go back on, but I know you've got a little bit more to say about the the actual, you know, the boxing itself. Yeah, I mean, all all I was going to say, they they actually, I mean, boxing is brutal. I mean, I I went to a few fights Mm. ringside when I used to go to this club and in the end, I didn't really want to go after a while because it, it's, it's quite horrible at times. The thing I always remembered was was actually a guy took a body shot and I heard this cracking sound. I don't think it was... Sorry, listeners, putting you off your dinner here. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it was a rib actually cracking, but it was some kind of you know impact sound. Yeah. And um, they actually exaggerated the brutality of it. Perhaps, I mean, I, that's only going by one of the filmmakers, but... Well, certainly it's, it's the, the bloodletting must be a bit exaggerated, the spurting. I think, yeah, that was slightly stylized. Yeah. Yeah, but the, it's, the, it's the combination of the blood, the sweat. The, I mean, but sweat does pour off. I mean, there's a great mm-hmm. picture from Sports Illustrated of a, a George Foreman fight when he was a bit older, and <laughs> there's a shot, of, and the sweat is just pouring off. Mm. And perhaps if you've never done any boxing training, perhaps it's hard to get through how difficult it is physically you know just if you just hit hit a punch bag for a minute non-stop you probably won't be able to feel your arms afterwards yeah you know well, i, I certainly so wouldn't yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'll get out of breath lacing them up mate lacing up the gloves <laughs> but it's the blood it's the blood the sweat and the steam that's the things it's and the steam just adds to this kind of a bit like they use in film noir it adds to this sort of heady very intense atmosphere mm. not so much the story but the the way it's filmed is very film noir, you know, it's very dark with the shadows and everything, and it, that's all very, very symbolic. Yeah, it's the, you know? the opening sort of credit sequence. Yeah. It's almost like, because this is back in the days when you could smoke in public spaces, and yeah. there's almost, like you say, this fog. You can't see the audience pretty yeah. much past the first or second row of ringside because there's this heavy fog just surrounding in beautiful black and white so it takes your focus to the ring. You're not, your eyes are not drifting away to things going on in the background because you've got nothing to look at. There's nothing there. And like yeah. you said, the steam as well. And when you add all those elements together, coupled with animal sounds, that's fascinating, that that revelation yeah. there, mate. As I say, you've added another layer to this movie already for me. Well, that, that's what the, the extras on the DVD did for me originally, so mm. I'm kind of just passing it on because I hadn't noticed them at all. No, know? I knew there were sound effects going on, but I didn't know exactly what they were. It's incredible. The Mm. cinematographer was a guy called Michael Chapman. Yeah, who who, worked on Jaws. He did. Well, Mm. yeah, he worked partly on Jaws. He also was the cinematographer on Taxi Driver and The Last Waltz with Scorsese. Bit of a checkered career, Mr Chapman, because 
after this, I mean, he did loads of movies. I've just picked out half a dozen at random here. Remember The Fugitive with uh, Harrison oh, Ford? Yeah. He did that. Ghostbusters 2, The Wanderers. Do you remember The Wanderers? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he was cinematographer on that. <laughs> and Slumber Party Massacre. So he had... <laughs> Don't know that one. <laughs> he, he sort of, after this, I think, was his peak. You know, this was the peak of his, his cinematography career. <laughs> it's hard to talk about Raging Bull without discussing the method actor and the, the lengths that De Niro in particular went to for this because whatever your opinion of this movie, whether you love it, you hate it, you've got no opinion of it whatsoever, it can't be denied that this is probably the classic example of method acting at its extreme and at its peak. I mean, there's that famous story, wasn't there, of, of Marathon Man? when Dustin yeah. Hoffman didn't sleep for three days, wasn't it, or something like that? Yeah, and ran, he ran round until he was completely exhausted as well. Uh, yeah, and, and the morning, you know, they were due to do some some shooting. He explained to Laurence Olivier that, you know, he'd not slept for three days because that's what the, the script demanded. And he went, have you tried acting, dear boy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you, you know, we're quite used to it nowadays when we, we see these weight losses and weight gains. You know, I think... Was it Christian Bale did it for The Machinist, didn't he? That rapid weight loss thing that yeah. he did. Oh. But this was the first real example that really came to the fore, wasn't it, of an actor going above and beyond to mm. achieve something for a movie. I mean, I don't know what notes you've got on this, but I know, he, didn't he... The production ceased, didn't it, for a couple of months while he went off to Italy just to eat pasta. Is, is that the story? Uh, yeah, absolutely. He put on um, £60, which is... Four, four stones, something. Mm, yeah. Actually, uh, yeah, I feel like it seems like more than that. But um, what you actually see the effect of that very early in the film, because the very first, the film is bookended with him in 1964. Yes. As a sort of nightclub owner telling these terrible jokes and doing this fairly dodgy cabaret, <laughs> but yeah. quite charismatic in his own way. And then they actually go from 64 to back to 41 or 43, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think Joe Pesci in this documentary said, you know, he wanted to make it clear that De Niro wasn't doing this to win an Oscar, the weight gain, I mean. Mm. Like Scorsese, I think that's probably one of the things that bonded them. They were both obsessive, amazingly dedicated, passionate. And not only the weight gain, I mean, he, De Niro and Pesci have a scene towards the end of the film because Jacob DeMotta obviously beat up his brother because he thought he was having an affair with yes. his wife. yeah. And then they don't meet in the story for, I don't know how long it is, I guess it's a few years. It's after the war, isn't it? It's definitely after that third fight with Robinson, because Robinson came back after yeah. the war, didn't he, because he was serving. That's right, yeah. It's after Sometime that. in the 50s, I I'd think. say the 50s, looking at the, the ageing yeah. of Joe, Joe Pesci's character, yeah. What they did was that Pesci didn't see De Niro in the time he was putting the weight on. Oh, right, OK. And so when they went to do that scene... <laughs> That was the first time he'd seen him, so there's a shock on his face. Mm. Because honestly, I mean, you know, to you and the listeners, if you look at that, it's not just the weight gain. He had the breathing right. I mean, they were all worried. They wanted to get those scenes shot quickly so he could start losing the weight again. <laughs> Obviously, you know, he did it by gaining weight, you know. So perhaps there wasn't as much acting involved in that as we think. Uh, but the, pr <laughs> the, the prosthetic nose as well probably Yeah, didn't yeah. help so much, you know, the older... 
Spud knows that he sort of develops towards the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. But perhaps what's most amazing and one of the reasons he deserved an Oscar was not only did he do that, but he had earlier got himself into a state where he actually fought professionally as a middleweight middleweight boxer. Yes. He just had three fights yeah. and won two of them, I think. Mm. Same as he's actually got himself a taxi license, didn't he? Before That's he, right. Yeah. While he was doing taxi driver. But he boxed a thousand rounds with the let's say around a thousand rounds. Mm. I don't think they were counting them, yeah. but a thousand three minute rounds with Lamotta himself. Yep. But De Niro to do that and to get himself in absolute tip top shape mm. and then subject himself to, you know, gaining four stone, 60 pounds. It's, it's not unheard of now, is it? That sort of method acting and going to those extremes It is something we have seen since yeah. this movie. I think it was quite, a revelation in 1980, though, wasn't it? I, I, I can't remember. I remember it being in the press at the time that people were like, look at the transformation and he's actually done this physically. It's not acting. It's not a fat suit or anything like that. Yeah. And we've sort of become a little bit blinkered to it now. It's not as as shocking or as sort of like eye-opening. But yeah. back then, it was like, wow, that's just incredible, you know? Yeah, I mean, these things can't be, can they, when you've... Same with, you know, music... Beatles or whatever, mm. you know, you can't know the impact of it when it first comes out. No, and no. I think the ultimate testimony to people like De Niro and Brando is that all the young guys who came out after said, I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, very Brando, influential. Yeah. Yeah. And talking to Brando, obviously, De Niro recites the famous on the waterfront monologue, Could yeah. Have Been a Contender, which was written by Bud Shawberg. Mm-hmm. But funnily enough, another connection, another thing I hadn't noticed till I saw this documentary is that, you know, there's not many sweet scenes in this film, but one of them is the Motta's first date with Vicky. And uh, someone on this documentary said that it's very similar to uh, Marlon Brando and Eva Marie Saint in On the Waterfront. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Because you've got a boxer, for a very working class boxer, being a little bit sweet, you know, obviously mm. turning on the charm a little bit. And uh, there's a little bit of similarity there. I, I'd never noticed that no, before. No, no, I hadn't. We spoke about the visual side of things. Mm. We've touched briefly on the, you know, the sound effects and the the sound sort of quality and the lengths that they went to to create some of that. Mm. You can't mention this movie without talking about the soundtrack itself. Now, Scorsese. I believe certainly not the first director in history to use classical music as a score because look at 2001, a film you're more than familiar with. Mm. You might need to confirm this for me, but I don't know how true this is. I read that it was possibly by accident that classical music was used as the soundtrack because wasn't it, I think, the score hadn't been written for 2001, but Kubrick used the Blue Danube and things like that, just to give himself a sense of the tempo and the timing when it came to editing and just generally assembling the movie. But he liked it so much, he decided to keep all of those famous bits of classical music in. Whether that's the case or not, Scorsese has deliberately chosen this classical score, hasn't he, as far as I'm mm. aware? Well, I mean, he's a he's a great talker, you know, he's a great interviewee. And um, not surprisingly, he's done a couple of director commentaries on DVDs and mm. he talks very fast, but he's full of passion and information as well. And he, he always paints a picture of where he grew up in New York and these sort of tenement buildings. What he would hear through the windows was a mixture of arguing, families arguing and music. Oh right, yeah. and and you could sort of smell the smell the cooking at lunchtime and dinner time as well. It was very very evocative. Yeah, 
and one of the things was classical music and i think an uncle of his gave him this the soundtrack to a i guess it's an opera cavaliera rusticana mm. by a little known composer called mascagni and uh obviously the main one is the the intermezzo you know that da, 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 you know the main theme become incredibly famous since the you know release of this mu- uh, this this movie oh yeah of course it's synonymous isn't mm. it um, I, I think it's one of the most bits. iconic credit sequences in, in movie history to be honest that oh, ho- i think so yeah that whole I mean, it, thing like oh. i said sorry mate but the whole thing i said with that that fog the yeah. almost slow motion, the low angle camera, the black and white, and that particular score, yeah. and instantly you're like, "Hello, we've got something a little bit different here." Yeah, and I guess the opera, I guess the characteristics of opera, there's there's often a lot of tragedy in the, mm. in the stories, but it's also there's a kind of majesty and beauty in these sort of soaring music you hear in operas. Yeah, I guess critics would say that it's glorifying it a little bit. And perhaps, you know, I mean, Scorsese is a, is a filmmaker. He's making films not only for passion. It is his career, you know, and I'd imagine he has a fair amount of control on it. But, you know, it's a piece of art. It's not supposed to be just a straight story. And as I've said earlier, in some ways, they sanitize a character, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah, but, I need uh, to um, have a little bit of a delve into the background. I've got the Blu-ray that's probably got the same documentaries and oh, commentaries sure, yeah. that yeah that you've got on the DVD because there, there's a there's a wealth of stuff on there. And as I say, you are now piquing my interest. You <laughs> you've done that. You're you're achieving what I asked you to do, which was to <laughs> to help me sort of understand this movie, which I think I've got now. Away from the technical side, away from the visual aspects of the film, let's. Just quickly, I'm going to spend a couple of minutes just chatting about the Oscars because, as you said, mm. Oscar-winning movie, but it only won two. Bear with me for a couple of minutes because oh. this is something I like to do now with these major movies. It's just a, a lot of people don't have a lot of sort of respect for the Oscars or you know the importance of them. But I've said this before on the show that okay, it may not hold so much weight in certain people's eyes, but for me, I love the romance of the old Hollywood and what it sort of represents from back in 1927 when it first started and it's Hollywood's mm. big night, you know, and, and we've sort of lost that a little bit now because we don't have the characters anymore. We don't have those, you know, those famous actors and actresses. And back in 1980, well, it was 81, would have been the award ceremony, March 81. Mm. It was broadcast, right, listen to this. I, I mentioned this earlier. It was broadcast March the 31st, 1981. It was originally going to take place the day before but it was mm. postponed because it was the assassination attempt on President Reagan. Oh. So, a little bit of a taxi driver reference there, because wasn't Hinckley obsessed with Jodie Foster? Yeah. There's, there's all that. And was it you that told me, was it Hinckley also had a copy of Catcher in the Rye, same as Chapman? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> so, took place a day later, was postponed for one day. Up for Best Picture, as well as Raging Bull, Ordinary People won the Best Picture that year. Yeah. Interestingly enough, black and white movie, The Elephant Man, was up for contention. Yeah. Along with Coal Miner's Daughter and Tess, the Roman Polanski adaptation of Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Best Director went to Robert Redford for Ordinary People. Yeah. Polanski was nominated. David Lynch was nominated for Elephant Man. Scorsese for Raging Bull. And a guy called Richard Rush for a film called The Stump Man, which starred mm. Peter O'Toole. Best Actor. Of course, De Niro won it. A lot of people thought it should have gone to John Hurt for The Elephant Man 
because mm. that man just acted with his eyes basically throughout that yeah. whole movie. Pete Rotall got nominated for The Stuntman. Jack Lemon got nominated for a movie called Tribute, which I'm not aware of. I don't think I know what that one is. No, I haven't seen that. And also Robert Duvall, another Godfather connection here. He got nominated this year for a movie. Now, I don't know if you've seen this. It's called The Great Santini. No, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. Yeah, watch it. Or I'll bring it to the show and I'll get you on board to have a little chat about it because I, I okay. go back to this every couple of years. In any other year, Robert Duvall would have won for that. It's a great film about... Um, I think he's a former Air Force pilot. It's, it's, all, it's a big family drama, soap opera mm. type thing, but he's a very sort of authoritarian father to his family. And, you know, yeah, very, very good film. None of the female actresses got nominated for Best Actress. Uh, nomination, nominations this year were Sissy Spacek for Coal Miner's Daughter, Ellen Burstyn for Resurrection, which I don't know. Goldie Horn got nominated for Private Benjamin. Do you remember that? Oh, I'd take Kathy Moriarty over Goldie Hawn that year. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy Moriarty was amazing. Yeah. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore got nominated for Ordinary People, and Gina Rowlands got nominated for Gloria. I now, think Kathy Moriarty was uh, nominated for Best Supporting, actually. Yeah, Best Supporting Actress. Yeah. She was nominated, but it went to Mary Steenburgen for Melvin and Howard, which is the oh, uh, Howard Hughes thing. It's quite a good film with, um, I think it's Jason Robards, if I remember right. And Pesci got nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but that went to Timothy Hutton for Ordinary mm. People. So, Felma Shoemaker won for Best Editing. So it only won two Oscars, Editing and Best Actor. And it was nominated, let's see, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, Best Cinematography it was nominated for, but that went to Tess. Interestingly and surprisingly, it didn't win. It, best Sound, because we focused a lot on the sound here. Ooh. Do you want to take a guess what that went to? You, you, Best know. sound in 1980. Yeah. Oh, that could have been the Elephant Man. Couldn't it, it could have been, but it's one. Of, it's a film that's not been mentioned. It went to the Empire Strikes Back oh. for best sound. <laughs> so his mate George Lucas was involved there somewhere along. Yeah. The way. So it's, it's just something I like to sort of just sort of. It gives a snapshot of what was going on around the time of the movie's release. Gives you an idea of what else was out there. Do you want to add any more before we sort of summarise and sort of wind this down a wee bit, mate? Just a couple of things. Mm. I mean, I made a note of some other films that came out in that year because yeah. that's something I like doing. Mm. And the ones that I would have seen and quite like, American Gigolo came out that year. Yeah. I've never been a big Star Wars fan, but obviously that's a big event is The Empire Strikes oh, Back. Oh, yes. Yeah. The Long Good Friday, big favourite of yours. Oh, we recorded A Real Britannia last week. It's going out on Good Friday. <laughs> oh. And then the, the well, Superman 2, because Richard Lester, we've obviously reviewed how i won the war before the shite the shining of course kubrick and yep. jack nixon and uh, a big favorite of mine a woody allen film stardust memories which yes. is about essentially about being famous mm. and uh just a couple of things with the elephant man uh, my friend uh, rob ager mm-hmm. i'd like to plug him actually rob ager ager he does film analysis on youtube mm. and uh, it's really good and he just recently did one about the elephant man so All i right. watched a few scenes of that Two interesting connections. It's a 1980 film in black and white that's got lots of smoke. It has. Smoke, smoke and, and steam, yeah. <laughs> smoke and, yeah, fog and steam, yeah. The other thing is that um, Raging Bull, when he's at his very lowest point, which is when he's in the jail, do you remember? And he's, and he's pounding the, the hell out of the wall, yeah. Just to tell the listeners, uh, those walls were cushioned with rubber. So I wasn't actually, hope so. It wasn't actually hitting the, uh, the hard <laughs> I was going to say, that's taking method acting to his extreme, the way he was headbutting that thing, so yeah. Yeah. But um, when he actually breaks down in the jail, he starts saying, uh, I'm not an animal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, isn't yeah. that amazing? 
which is obviously one of the quite key lines in uh, Elephant Man. Well, there you go. Yeah. I don't think there was any collusion between. No, I wouldn't them. have thought have... so. It was on the poster. I, I remember the the sort of tagline was "I'm not an animal." Um, I'm a human being and it's in the trailer I remember it being a big part of the trailer for Elephant Man I'm going to be bringing Elephant Man to Real Britannia at some point because it's also one of my favourite movies can I volunteer for that? yes I would like to invite you to that one mate so that (laughs) will be happening in the next couple of months the 80s are a fascinating year people just think it's John Hughes movies and it's not Yeah, uh, I had one more thing mm. about the film, and then I'm then I'm done. Yeah, the home movies. If you remember, there's the bit where it suddenly goes colour. Yeah, you see them them getting married, and it's one of those filmic devices actually where you can cover a few years. You oh know. yeah, transition of time and all that lot. Yeah, yeah. transition. Yeah. That's it. They were actually taken from Jake Lamotta's real home movies. Oh really? Which, yeah, <laughs> and that again, very very Scorsese. They're almost shot for shot the same. In fact, now the colour. The idea of having the colour films, obviously, because probably when Jake LaMotta did it, it was quite trendy and you had to have a bit of money to have, yeah, like, of course, yeah. to get colour film, of course. But um, it's supposed to symbolise the, the, the happy years, because when they first got married and his brother got married and everything. Yeah. But they had to, to make them look like home movies. They had to desaturate the colour. They added flash frames. And they actually physically scratched the negative. <laughs> and uh, what happened was that Scorsese and one of the editors, I don't know if it was Thelma, but one of the other guys involved, they tried to edit it badly, but they couldn't because all their instincts were telling them to edit it properly <laughs> and frame it well. So they had to get, I guess, some amateurs to yeah, put it to, together to get for it us. <laughs> Thelma Schoonmaker, who won, she actually said on this documentary and has said many times that that Oscar really was deserved by Scorsese because he was such... She's a very talented editor. Oh, yes. I think directors are often very much involved in the editing. They sit in the editing room with the editors. So. Oh, yeah. They, they obviously direct that side of things as well as directing what's, you know, going through the camera. Yeah, she's a skillful, skillful lady. You know, she directed. She's worked with him for 50 years. You know, she's still oh. working with him until recently. I'm not sure if, you know, yeah, how involved they are together now. But it's a 50-year relationship. I know that. And, um yeah. He, he obviously won an he won one an Oscar in the end, didn't he, for The Departed? He did, yeah. Which one, I think one she of those, edited then. I think she was editor on that. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. But it's one of those occasions where you know they don't give you an Oscar for the films that you should have got, so they kind of yeah. give you a pat on the back a few years later. You it's know, recognition for life's work, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, The Departed's not bad, but I would I wouldn't put it anywhere near Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Mean Streets, or King yeah. of Comedy, or Goodfellas. Yeah. That was the thing, wasn't it? He went all of those years. It was just, you know, he should have got it for Goodfellas. He should have got it for Raging Bull. Mm-hmm. He should, you know, and Departed came out. I think, I can't even remember what was about that year. And as you say, probably didn't deserve it. But yeah. Well, did. interesting mm-hmm. Interesting with Ordinary People. It, it's one of those occasions where the film which, I mean, Ordinary People, I haven't actually seen it, but I know a bit about it. Mm. It's about a sort of dysfunctional upper class family. Yes, yeah. But I think, it's a much more wholesome film than Raging Bull. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> and a real parallel was a few years later when uh, Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction were the two films, and Forrest Gump won everything. And I used to like the Oscars. Since i become perhaps a bit more political, I can <laughs> kind of see, you know, when someone wants to protest something like Michael Moore when did Fahrenheit 9-11, yeah. you know, it's like, don't ruin our party with real life. And... I think these years where something like Forrest Gump, Ordinary People will win over something that, for me, is clearly better filmmaking, more visceral 
filmmaking kind of tells you a bit about the politics of it yeah but, like i said since 1927 i think was the first one it's been hollywood's pat on its own back that's the best way to describe that's it, what yeah. it is isn't it it's like it's our party it's our rules yeah, it's, and the glamour and- yeah and it's not public opinion doesn't dictate who wins an oscar look at the academy members they're not members of the public exactly so you know if if it went to a public vote that would be an interesting thing you know to find out how it would have gone we know in certain cases that goodfellas should have won over dances with wolves Mm. that pulp fiction should have won over forest girl every other year there is a case of that same with whether it be the actor or the actress the director whatever You, you know how this thing works i mean the third in the trilogy of the lord of the rings sequence one that year but you know deep down that that was in recognition of the whole event yeah. the whole of that trilogy yeah it's the achievement yeah, yeah. and and you know the, the fair play to peter jackson you know he created and, and actually invented along with the wetter workshop and all that lot special mm. effects that were not in great use you know the motion capture and andy circus and all that sort of stuff mm. and it was in recognition of that whole event as we say but I like the Oscars because of the romance of it, because of the history of it. They don't hold a great deal of sway with me as to, you know, oh, great, Parasite won this year because it was the best film. It was a bloody Mm. great film. You know, I I probably actually do agree with that decision. But for me, I just like watching it because I like watching Hollywood be smug and patting itself on the back, as I say. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's what it was all about, you know. Almost like top ten mainstream, more or less mainstream friendly (laughs) <laughs> yeah or however many films are nominated for best picture and mm. often often the right people win i mean for example with pulp fiction tarantino won for writing yeah you know and raging bull now has got its recognition and the wonderful thing about films is that as you and i have talked about before films change over time in that some hold up and some don't oh yes and some have lasting value and raging bull and pulp fiction i think have their place mm. fairly cemented I think you've actually, in this 90 minutes, convinced me (laughs) that Raging Bull is the better film than I thought it was. Mm. And I'm going to go back to it very, very soon. But if it wasn't for the podcast, Raging Bull would have been consigned to the back of my mind 15 Mm. years ago, after that second watch. I would not have had the opportunity to watch it this week and talk to somebody with a great passion for it, which is what you've got, and just work it out in my brain, which you've actually done. In summary, I think I like it. I, I certainly like it more coming out of this podcast than I did going into it. I certainly appreciate I can see that it's a good-looking movie. It's filled with incredible performances. Mm. I will give it another go. I was originally going to say, oh, I'll give it another go in a couple of years. I'm thinking before the end of the year I may rewatch this or at least go to those documentaries and commentaries that you were talking about. What I found out on this viewing, we haven't really mentioned this, but I I found I enjoyed the last act more than the first couple. The highlights of the boxing sequences, that's that's obvious, but that last bit, the not the downfall, but the after boxing career, I was sort of Mm. more Oh yeah, I like this. The everyday family stuff, I just there's a lot of improvisation there. You can see that it was it wasn't scripted a lot of it, which isn't a bad thing. You know, it produces some golden pieces of cinema. But it was just that last bit that I think I found more fascinating, the method bit I think I found a bit more fascinating. You've actually made it click for me, certainly within the boxing scenes. And what I'm going to do, I mean, I normally review it 
because I, you know, I log these on letterbox.com, which is a five star oh. rating system. I'm not going to give it four. I'm going to give it a heavy three if there is such a thing. <laughs> three with a heart. <laughs> I don't, yeah, because I don't, I, t- I tend not to do half stars when I do my reviews. So, yeah, it's a, it's a heavy three, a very light four, if you want to call it that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you actually rate movies in your in your head? Yeah, sometimes. Oh, yeah. I, 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 maybe hmm. it's part of my nature, but I probably do go for halves okay. if, if it's required. This one, I mean, I, I don't, ironically, I don't actually believe in perfection, but this is still a five star, 10 out of 10. That's fine. There's but nothing part, wrong with having it. It's, it's, it's in your top three, isn't it? So it's, it's got to be yeah. a five star, 10 star movie for you. But for me, the it's the personal connection. I mean, like I said at the top of the program, something like Jaws, that thing of, you know, before we had a video recorder and checking the Radio Times every week oh, and every yes. two years that film would come <laughs> on and just loving it because I didn't know it too well because I only saw it every few years and then I've never lost that really. And yeah. I, kill, I killed it all the first time I got a video recorder because I watched the film every day for six months. You and uh, I are so course. alike, mate. We are so yeah. alike. <laughs> so I think, I think if you have a fascination with boxing, it helps. Yes. Even though it's... it's they always say it's not a boxing film. It's a film about this, this, and this with boxing as the backdrop. But mm-hmm. I think an appreciation of boxing is not essential, but it, it, it helps. Oh, no, not at all. No. Mm. It's definitely a bloke's movie, though. It's not a chick flick at all, is it? <laughs> no. It's not feel good either. <laughs> the, oh, no, the worst Christmas you could imagine. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you here, mate. Thank you for coming along. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, very welcome. Yeah, it was great. I'm just, uh, I just had a picture in my mind. Can you imagine Jimmy Stewart as Jake LaMotta? How, how do you think that would go? No. Not very well, no. No, he did struggle to be flyweight, wouldn't he, let alone middleweight. <laughs> <laughs> well, his height might get him up to about welterweight. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's been fantastic. Yeah, I mean, this is a film I'm very passionate about. I'm, I cheated in a way because uh, all the research was already in my head, if you know what I mean. That's but, uh, no, nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> like I said to you, it's, it's not a case of doing research and trying to be technical about a film, but mm. as long as the conversation flows, mate, which it has done today, with me and you just chipping in enough to hopefully keep the listener entertained for the last 90 minutes. Yeah, and I hope they go back, you know, and if they have some interest in it, I mean... Mm. Yeah, go back to it and notice all these little things because some of these things are just fabulous, you know, the sound effects and all the other stuff we've talked about. Certainly what I'm going to be doing, mate, now you've pointed at elephants, for God's sake, who knew? Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Could you give the listener, before we go, how how can they get hold of the Glass Onion on John Lennon? Yep, Glass Onion on John Lennon. Um, I actually host it from SoundCloud. And if you have a SoundCloud account, um, that's probably the best place because it's got... It's got all the photos associated with each episode. It's quite quite colourful. I like SoundCloud. Then I'm on all the other ones that I guess you're on as well. iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, etc. Yep. And then uh, there's a Facebook page, uh, which is the same name as the podcast. And then Twitter is at Onion Lennon, capital O, capital L. It's Spike a great English. podcast, mate. I mean, I've been on there three times now was it three mm. yeah and we're going to be recording another episode for for film fans out there obviously you know listening to this hopefully you do look like a, the odd movie or two we're going to be talking about nowhere boy from a couple yep. of years ago so that's coming up yeah you don't have to be a fan of the beatles or john lennon to listen to the podcast i would highly recommend it because some of the guests that anthony has on there are absolutely incredible 
the conversation's good. The research is impeccable, as always. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here, sir. You're very welcome. We'll see you very soon. Take care, mate. Goodbye. All right, mate. All the best. Bye. of this theater suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture, you will not divulge to anyone the secret of the ending. Astrid, infernal jamboree is worse than two cats on a fence. You dudes get lost now, you hear? Good night, ladies. Good night, sir.